This week on Out of the Air features Northwest Indiana landscape artist Mark Vanderbin discussing his art journey, upcoming exhibits, and workshops. Next, Canterbury Summer Theater's 55th season with artistic directors Ray Scott Crawford and David Graham and Leah Mazur serving as company manager and scenic designer. Our spotlight is on Brian Crum and his Barfly friends' June 2nd record release, Just Fade Away. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart. Express yourself to art. And show the world your heart. Welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, WVLP 103.1 FM, and WDSO 88.3 FM. Our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art on the Air is heard every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Also heard on Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at WVLP.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on WDSO 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Media. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. I'd like to welcome back to Art in the Air on Spotlight this time, Brian Crum. He, we heard him a long time ago in an interview, and you can listen to that interview on October 31st, 2021 at the uh, Art on the Air website. And uh, he's coming back with some new uh, new release on Provica Records uh, that will be released on June 2nd. His group is called Brian Crum and the Barfly Friends, and the album is Just Fade Away. And we'll take a quick listen to it, but Brian, welcome back to Art on the Air Spotlight. Aloha. Thank you very much. Thank you. Aloha. Thank you for having me back. Well, tell us about what you've been doing since we had you uh, on um since the last time we spoke uh i've been finishing a record and that is coming out in june on Pravda records as you said uh the chicago great chicago label that's had a run of some really great releases uh this year and past year and excited to be part of that label and excited to get this music out into the world so um so That's, the album is called Just Fade Away, and we'll be playing some of uh, that track. So can you tell us what inspired that song? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it, it's kind of like a lot of songs on this record uh, based um, based on memories uh, and trying to tell. That's what I really tried to do a little bit with this record is try to tell stories without being as specific or with using less lyrics than I, that I have in the past. And um, that song came about like all these songs did. I tried to write a tune every day at five o'clock um, during the pandemic. And um, 
within a, a span of about 25 days, I had 25 songs at the end of that time period. Remarkably, because it usually doesn't work like that. It usually, you know, uh, inspiration comes uh, very sporadically. But this, uh, I came up with the 25 tunes and then um, started working on them with my friend and bandmate, Christian Motor, um, and the other guys in the Great Crusades. Uh, we started finishing off 11 of those songs, and those are the ones that ended up on the record. And so the members of the Great Crusades are still helping you out on this one. They are. They oh. are. They, uh, Brian Hunt and Brian Leach. Bunch of Brians. <laughs> they go ahead and make the joke that the, the band should be called Life of Brian because we've heard We talked about times. that. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Although Christian is, is not a big fan of that, that joke. But, okay. uh, so, yeah, the, the Great Crusades guys helped out. And then there was a cast of, um, you know, let's say almost about... 20 to 25 other people that contributed various uh, instruments and vocals. Um, my good friend, Jesse Hotelling, um, who I also play with in a band called Soul Daddy. She contributed uh, some great co-lead vocals um, on Just Fade Away, the song, and two other songs on the record, as well as contributing um, background vocals. I have my daughter, Hazel Crumb, appears on the record. And even my wife, Laura Coy, appears on one song, and Vivian Crown, my other daughter, is also on the record. So it's kind of like a family affair. Get those people to work. I don't just, you know, <laughs> let them sit around the house and eat bonbons. Well, that's the way to go. You know, why don't we take a quick listen to that? We'll just listen to it because of Spotlight segment. We can't listen to all of it, but let's take a listen to the song Just Fade Away, just a little segment of it. Sounds great. How can I not remember the day? Stepped on a plane to take you away It was easy to escape In the clouds, clouds up above Just Fade Away from the Just Fade Away album, Brian Crum and his Barfly Friends. And uh, that's part of your new uh, endeavor here. So, And the, just to remind everyone, that's uh, June 2nd for the release. But you have some other events going on that night and on. So tell us about some of the things where people can see you. Sure, sure. Uh, June 2nd, like you said, is, is the official release date for the album. The single Just Fade Away will come out in the middle of May. But uh, June 2nd is our first release show, which we'll have at the Liars Club. And we have some special guests, including um, my friends in the Chicago band, The Handcuffs, are joining us at the Liars Club on June 2nd. Um, August 4th, we'll be at Fitzgerald's in Berwyn. Love that club, so I'm excited yeah. to play in the room there. And then uh, September 9th, be playing with the even more of my barfly friends at the Uncommon Ground in Wrigleyville. So that's, uh, and not to, mention, yeah, not to mention that we have a tour overseas, uh, all in the country of Germany, um, that runs from the 16th of June until uh, June 24th. So if you happen to be in, June, in uh, Germany this summer, 
make sure to look us up. Just say hi. <laughs> Sounds great. Say aloha. Well, do you have, uh, you know, you're just finishing this project. Is there any, any songs that were left over that didn't make the cut to the album? But you say, you know, this could be another album here. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's about 12 to 13 songs. And I, I was actually um, kind of pondering, um, I guess some of them, the reason they didn't make the this album was because they sort of started to repeat uh, ideas and concepts that were already in another song. <laughs> so, so we kind of just set them to the side for now but now i'm thinking some of those songs might work for another another project another band so that's a good position to be in to have some extra songs some extras yeah yeah it's always good to have you extras well brian we appreciate coming on art in their spotlight brian crumb and his barfly friends their album released for just fade away will be at the liars club on june 2nd thank you so much for coming on art on the air spotlight thank you very much have a great day Art on the Air Spotlight and the full one-hour Art on the Air program on Lakeshore Public Radio is brought to you by Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And as a reminder, if you'd like to have your event on Art on the Air Spotlight or have a longer feature interview, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, on WVLP, 103.1 FM, and WDSO, 88.3 FM. We would like to welcome Mark Vanderven to Art on the Air. Mark is an award-winning Northwest Indiana landscape painter. His style reflects his wide range of influences. Mark's love of the landscape comes from the fields, farms, and forests where he grew up, as well as the travels he took with his family to see the national parks and American West landscapes. Thank you, Mark, for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome. Hello. How are you doing today? We're doing it's a great. Good day. Well, you know, like we always like to start with all of our guests, Mark, as we like to find out their whole background story, uh, where you grew up, early influences, art, and all the way through. So, and then later on, college, and even like uh, your non-artistic pursuits. So. I like to say how you got from where you were to where you are now. So, Mark, tell us about yourself. That is a long journey, but I will keep it short. <laughs> no, we like long journeys. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I grew up in a small town in Iowa called Eldridge, Iowa, just north of the Quad Cities, just north of Davenport. Um, it's a farm and factory, you know, area. So uh, art was not really practiced there much, <laughs> yeah. certainly not really accepted uh, very well. Um so it was a very interesting uh, grow, uh, time growing up. Uh, my father was a English and humanities teacher. Uh, so I sort of had that background. I was always at least, I'm probably one of the few artists who actually have the parents who support the arts, you know, <laughs> as opposed to try to stop them from becoming an artist. Right. Right. Um, you know, in what fact, are you really going to do? <laughs> yeah. You know, in fact, they were the ones who were telling me, you should be an artist. And I'm like, who makes art like you know <laughs> come on you know but uh it, it's a you know so i mean i've i've always drawn i've always been attracted to art i've always doodled and, and things like this you know i mean uh i probably started copying frank frazetta and uh paintings and john buscema conan the, the savage sort of conan comic books and spider-man comic books and things like that <laughs> Um, you know, got into, uh, would create my own monsters for Dungeons and Dragons games and things, <laughs> you know, 
you know, it's cool now. It wasn't cool then. Right. You know, <laughs> um, you know uh, that's, that's my nerd side for sure. You know, and, and still enjoy that to some extent from time to time. Um, Do you still play D and D? You know, um, my friend and I are, I, I, I played a couple times since, since then my friend and I are actually talking about getting a campaign together. So yeah, you know, I like to, it's just finding time and, and all that, but you know, great game. So. so did you have any influences early in our uh, per- people like uh, in school or anything like that, or just your own venturing out on creating D and D type monsters? Yeah. I, you know, and again, influenced, I was very influenced by book covers. I read a lot of fantasy and speculative fiction and stuff growing up um, and was very influenced by book covers. In fact, that's what I wanted to be was to be a, a book cover artist that's um, why I went to art schools to to go follow that pursuit. Um, you know, it didn't turn out that way, and and I know why. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but it's influences. Yeah, man. Uh, it's funny. I, I, I my influences was my best friend Todd, who's still a great friend of mine. Uh, we would we had this wonderful friendship where it was. I call it a uh, Friendly competitiveness, mm-hmm. where it's this, you know, I'll draw something and he'll be like, oh, that's really cool. And he'll go to his, you know, his drawing table and come up with something really cool. And I'm like, oh, that beats mine. I got to go <laughs> draw something better, you know? <laughs> you know, it's this wonderful, friendly competition. No point was it like, you know, uh, mean or, or mean spirited or anything. It was always just we were just trying to friendly outdo the other guy growing up, you know? Um, yeah, and that, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. You know, uh, I still have that in some of my friends and I'm, I'm probably just that personality where I'm always trying to learn. I'm always trying to improve my art, always trying to get, to get better. Um, you know, so that was definitely part of it. I, I didn't really have known artists like, like I didn't, you know, I've been to a couple museums when I was a kid, but didn't really care. You know, it it really wasn't until I got to art school, which I'm sure we'll talk heavily about, that I really got to get very influenced by people, by other artists. Um, you know, I, I had a decent, I had a couple of decent art teachers. They weren't, you know, I, mean, I love them dearly. You know, Mr. Prima and Mr. Peters, I love them dearly. But I can't say they were great art teachers in the way that my art teachers were in art school. Mm-hmm. And I went to the American Academy of Art in Chicago. Um, you know, they were prof- as a whole professional artists making a living at their art who could really explain how to go about making art and inspire you to want to do the best work you, you know, that you can do. Uh, let's go back a little bit before that happened. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, friendly, competitive art, just playing around, goofing off, not really taking it seriously, but doing it a fair amount still just for fun. I went to uh, a four-year college in, um, in Pella called Central University of Iowa uh, for a time and struggled there, really struggled. And, and, and uh, you know, got into a, a pretty deep depression there now. I can look back and call it what it was and you know, and, and things and, and just didn't, was not at a happy place during that time period. 
but I took a life drawing class, you know, because I was trying to be a musician. You know, I want to play guitar and be in a rock band and, you know, who didn't want to be that, right? Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, why go into a four-year college for that made any sense? I have no idea. But, <laughs> you know, uh, but I, uh, you know, I, I, that's what I wanted to be. And, and it didn't take me long at all to figure out that I really didn't understand music the way that these kids other students understood music. I didn't have that formal musical background being in band my entire life, you know, uh, I, you know, so I, uh, so I just, I just wasn't in, in a, in a very good emotional place there, but I took this, I took this life drawing class and I remember the teacher, I do not remember his name. He had this cute little Jack Russell dog that you would bring to class, <laughs> but, uh, he would, he asked me one day near the end of the uh, end of the session. Uh, he was like, you know, Mark, can I talk to you? I'm like, oh my god, here I am in trouble. What did I do? You know. And he pulled me aside and he said, "You shouldn't be here. You need to be going to art school." Wow. Like, well, that's big. I'm not happy. I'm broke. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm losing money and I can't afford next year. So uh, I took a year off and looked around earned some money, looked around, uh, and found the American Academy of Art and ended up at the American Academy of Art. Yeah. Where I learned more in the first month than I had in the 19 years it took me to get there. Like, the, 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 the way it was structured, you know, just... Well, in the atmosphere of just being around other people who are very creative, creative yes. all the time. Yeah, right? You know, it was so cool because, like, I, I called my dad after the first grading session. I'm like, Dad, I have no idea what my grades are going to be. You know, <laughs> you know I, I can't tell you. And he's like, are you trying hard? I'm like, yeah. He goes, are, are, you, are you enjoying it? Do you like what you want? You know, and I'm like, oh, my God, I found my tribe. Like, these are the people who I get. They get me. I get them. Like, <laughs> it's great. You know, he goes, well, that's all that matters. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. That's so wonderful, Mark. And what dad says that, like, right? <laughs> you know, you know, he was a pretty cool guy looking back. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a great story and everything. So you go to the American Academy and you finish up. And uh, now you, early on, you had like the illustration idea, I guess, and you're, you know, doing that. So, but tell us how that developed after that. And while you were there, any one particular teacher or professor you know, influenced you? Many. Or what type of art were you doing there? <laughs> right. That's what I um, So I went, I went for an illustration major, which I received an illustration major and an advertising minor. Uh, the advertising minor was a joke, uh, but it got me into advertising and helps me pay the mortgage. You <laughs> know, <laughs> and all of that. Um, but so I, I wanted to be an illustrator. I, I was like, I really want to go be a fantasy book cover illustrator in the Keith Parkinson, Daryl Sweet, Frank Frazetta kind of ways. You know, that's what that's where my focus was. But I got there and I realized I didn't have the chops for that. Like, you know, to do that at that point, you know. Um I remember I remember sitting in life drawing class and there's a second year student in front of me who's doing this just beautiful, a little more, you know, shoulders up portrait, you know. And, and it's in charcoal. It's just gorgeous. I'm just like, I don't know how to do that. You know, I'm not my first year student, you know, but I'm like, I don't know how to do that. And that's when I was like, but I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone and find out. Like, I'm going to figure this out. So I did just that. Like, I really put my nose to the grindstone. 
um, and tried to figure out how to go and paint, paint and draw, you know, well, um, my teachers, you know, I'm, I'm along that, that way. I mean, I, I was so instilling I'm, I'm, I'm just the, I'm the, I would say I'm the why guy. I want to know why something works. You know, it was one of the problems I had, in, I had taking art history or, or before, you know, art classes before art school. I would, I would ask questions about the art. Why is Jesus in a red robe? Why isn't it blue or yellow or purple or, you know, like why, why, why is it that? Or why are these people posed here and not over there? You know, and, and most people couldn't answer those questions. You know, uh, in art school, they taught me how to answer those types of questions. They'd be like, oh, well, so-and-so painted it this year in, you know, 1200 or whatever. And, you know, and you got to memorize the title and the date and all that. And I'm like, who cares? Like, I, I can care less about that. I want to know why the artist did what the artist did. Why he made the choices he makes or she, you know, makes. And I'm still of that mentality. I'm still very much driven by what makes good art. How do we, how can we put those into words so other artists can understand so that we all can make better art? Yeah, so, you know, I'm ranting here a little bit. I'm sorry. No, 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 no this so, is exactly what we want. No, no, because, no, <laughs> you know, we're leading to how, you yeah. know, where you got to landscapes and oils. But so. that was, that was my first the art school was the first time I really got to understand fine art, mm-hmm. what that was. I saw Richard Schmitz hanging on the wall, literal Richard Schmitz hanging on the wall. I saw illustrations from Thomas Blackshear, um, Haddon Sumblum, the illustrator, you know, a little Santa Claus illustrator and things. Um, those were my, you know, initial first seeing real art. You know, before I'm just looking through magazines. And I was going, you know, book covers and things. And that's how I always saw art. Um, it wasn't until I moved up here. I mean, I'd been to the Art Institute a couple of times, but, but didn't really understand. It wasn't until I, I moved to the Chicagoland area, uh, went to the art school, and then, you know, saw, saw and understood a sergeant, saw and understood a homer, you know. Really got Pretty overwhelming. Know. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, like, like breathtaking. So. Yes. Um, I will never forget Irving Shapiro on a, on a day in, in watercolor class. He was my watercolor teacher and he took this, this, the class to the art Institute, went to the print and drawing room Mm. and he's pulling out watercolors from the drawer. They don't even have framed, not under glass, nothing, pulling them out, setting them up on top of the table for all to see and to get as close as you want to them. And there's these beautiful watercolors. Of course, I mean, Sargent's watercolors are just breathtaking. They're so killer. This use of color to create value is, is insane how he does that, you know? Um, yeah. And it's nothing like there's, it's, it's unexplainable what it feels like to be up close to see the most minute mark made hmm. to create a piece i just yeah um, you can see the pencil lines through the color and right. stuff. it's like who, you know you don't think about how they're doing the underdrawing stuff you just see the final painting and go oh look how pretty that is you know but when you actually understand the process you're like wow he's really going through a process there and he's got to figure all of that out mm-hmm. and to see that up close and personal because usually you go to an art 
museum and the buzzer gets off if you get too close right <laughs> you know the, the last, you know and all of us artists want to get really close right because mostly you're looking at images on a page in a book but to see yeah. the artist's mark it's really it's a phenomenal experience yeah. yeah yeah there's a there's a um there's a fog scene on the river sign by monet in the art institute that is my all-time favorite piece and to this day takes my breath away every time i see it and you have to see that in person like i've seen it printed and it's nice you know even the high resolution um digital download from the art institute itself is nice it's not the real thing right and until you get in there and see the layering he does of color you have no idea what that thing you know right. like it doesn't affect you the same way the textures the the layering of colors it's it's basically a two value painting it's like who does a two value painting like it's insane <laughs> how you can pull that off and, and just yeah, the, you know, the actual brush strokes on some of them or lack of depending, you know, it's just yeah. so interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You go in there, you look at the Innises and, and you see the lack of brush strokes. Mm-hmm. How thin the paint actually is to get that luminosity, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's great. So, you know, these are all artists who I love and admire even to this day, um, you know, uh, I sadly missed the NCY show when it was in town when I was in art school and everybody was talking about it and I didn't get to go. Um, I didn't even know who NCY was until I went to art school. I had no concept of him, you know, uh, which is weird wanting to be an illustrator, like, you know, one of the greatest illustrators of all time. How do you yeah. not know who NCY right. is, you know, <laughs> you know, but I, I hadn't heard of him. I think I maybe had heard of Andrew. Andrew, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and I went out to uh, Colorado for a show and saw an original Jamie Wyeth and blown away by it. Oh my God, I was blown away by that piece. Mixed media and just gorgeous. It's a turtle on a river and huge painting and just like, oh my God. Um, you know, so it, that's the thing. It's like all these influences, you know, you mentioned all the influences, all these influences it's not just fine artists. It's not just illustrators. You know, I, to this day, watch animated, animated movies and animation, you know, to me, the epitome of, of art, because you have music, you have story, you have art, drawing, you know, et cetera, like all thrown into one thing. It's like, you know, sometimes singing and dancing and things. Right. It's like, it's all, it's all the arts kind of thrown together. It's like, how beautiful is that? You know, yeah. So to this day, I still watch all of these movies, Pixar, Disney, whenever yeah. they come out. It is amazing. And my kids. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, how Disney figured out the whole uh, 24 frames per music and uh, was able to synchronize music uh, with film and everything and then make that whole a total package and everything like that. So you're right. It's, it, it is amazing to bring all that together. So on your own work, um, I kind of looking at it, I know it sometimes shifts from uh, a little bit of abstract expressionism to, you know, so describe your own thing. I mean, go somewhat realistic in some. And so, but you describe how you approach your work. I know it's different, different times. Yeah, it's different. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I'm only beginning to find my voice, which even in art school, I was told I had a voice they thought, Mark, we know yours from everybody's in the class. I never felt it. I never saw it. 
only recently have, have I begun to see that. Um, I think my aim or my goal as an artist at this time is to create mood through shape and color and composition. You know, I think that sums it up pretty well. You know, I'm constantly trying to use shape, color, and composition to create a mood that evokes something out of somebody. So do you only work in oils primarily? I only work in oils now. And yeah. so what led you to to choosing oils? I mean, I, I would know the answer for myself, but, you know, there's just a luminosity that's very beautiful. Yeah, I, I didn't really like oils in art school. I was actually more of an acrylic painter at the time, probably, probably because I was going more down the illustration line and it was faster, and, you know, right. could get things done quicker. Um, it wasn't until I took a plein air class workshop with Ken Oster uh, that he used a limited palette, primary palette of uh, oils that I went, I got to figure this out. This is pretty cool. And I got to go figure this out, you know? So I, I did like, you know, as I went down that path to, to, to go, well, let's go figure this out. And you know? so what makes you decide to use canvas versus panel? Is it, mm. a, does the painting inform that choice or just what I, you have on hand? <laughs> I don't use canvas anymore. Almost everything I do is on panel. The only time mm. I'll use a canvas is if it's a really big painting, and I'm afraid of the weight. And then I'll, then I'll buy a, a usually buy a pre-stretched uh, canvas. You know, I have a rule. Uh, I want to be a better painter, not a better framer, not a better canvas stretcher, not a better, you know, <laughs> like all the other jobs you have to do as an artist, you know, um, just take me away from the time of painting. Right. And I'd rather spend it painting. Most of mine is just on, uh, is on birchwood panel that I just right. prime with oil ground on top. Do you have a certain time that you set aside for your painting, your work? You know, it's like, you know, every day I'll do this or, you know, what what's your process in doing that because you obviously have work that's non-artistic but you know what, what's your process for that uh fit it in where i can <laughs> <laughs> uh lately because i've got a deadline i've been getting up in the morning and painting um sometimes i'm too tired at night by the time i get home you're paint. getting ready for a show is that the deadline yes 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 i've got a show at the uh fernwood clark gallery in michigan uh oh, nice it opens on on june 9th and uh, so I've been painting for that. For that, it's 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 myself and, and a few buddies, Alan Larkin, David Seward, and Marianne Davis, and we've painted together for years. So yeah. when you started painting your landscapes, did you start out with an impressionistic sort of style, or did you find your, you know, did it evolve? Yeah, boy, getting into plein air, right? Uh, boy, plein air painting is hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. It takes a while to learn how to do that outside, you know. Uh, it it just does. It, I've done it out of necessity of learning how having to do something quickly outside because, you know, normally in the studio you can take all the time you want and rework it and rework it and rework it. Outside you've got two and a half, maybe three hours on a cloudy day to get something down, and if you don't get it down, you've missed it. Right. Well, we need to wrap up here, and I'll, quick, I'll throw a quick question. Do you ever work from a photograph uh, and bring it in as opposed to plein air? Mm. I, I do that a lot, actually. I'll, I will work from plein air studies, and I'll also work from photographs, um, often the two together. Right. You know, I'll do the plein air study, and then I'll, I'll have photographs as well. Because in the studio, I can sit and I can manipulate and change and, and do what I want with it. Um, outside, I'm usually just trying to capture what I'm seeing or trying to capture the feeling that I have. 
if it's like the sunset or something where you've only got 20 minutes to capture it. I'm really messing with color and trying to get that color and value and trying to get that accurate. Uh, Very good. Well, we only have a few moments here. Tell us how people can find you online and any upcoming exhibits or workshops you have. Yeah. um, You can always find me at my website online, which is uh, vandervinstudio.com. Or you can just type in my name, markvandervin.com, and that will also take you there. That will have all, all the upcoming events, shows, workshops, etc. As I mentioned, the, the uh, Fernwood show at the uh, Clark Gallery is coming up starting June 9th. Uh, I've got the Paint Grand Traverse, which is a plein air event in Traverse City, Michigan, June 9th through the 24th. I've got the Bluff Strokes in Dubuque, Iowa. Is it August? September. See, that's where I messed up. Um, and then a workshop at the Art Barn in October. Great. Well, Mark, Excellent. we appreciate you finally getting you on the show. I've been working on this for a while. Mark Vanderven, you can see his work all over the place. Mark, thank you so much for coming on Art on the Air. Yeah, it was thank very so interesting. Thank you. No problem. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Hi there. This is public radio theme composer B.J. Lederman. And you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and on WVLP 103.1 FM. We are very pleased to welcome back the Canterbury Summer Theater's Artistic Director, Ray Scott Crawford, Associate Artistic Director, David Graham, and Leah Mazur. This is the 55th anniversary year of the Canterbury Summer Theater and the 43rd season for Ray Scott. Actor, director, playwright, Ray Scott has directed over 150 musicals, dramas, and comedies for stage. David returns for his 32nd summer at Canterbury and will direct the season opener, Violet Hour. He has been involved in over 100 Canterbury productions. His talents also include acting, lighting design, playwriting, and he has published two books. Leah is a Canterbury alumnus who in 2011 was the technical director while still an undergrad. She is now the area head of the Design and Technology BFA program in the Department of Theater, Arts, and Dance at the University of Texas at Arlington. Thank you all for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. Well, welcome. Hello. Hello. Welcome, all three of you. Well, we've I talked guess. about Ray Scott and David before, but I think we're going to give Leah a chance to talk about her background and everything, you know, her bio, where she grew up, you know, all the type of thing. All I would like to say is how you got from where you were to where you are now. So Leah, tell us all about yourself. For sure. So um, I, it all started one day. Um, I was raised on the Gulf Coast, um, Southern Alabama, moved around a lot whenever I was younger um, and ultimately ended up in Southwest Oklahoma, where I spent my later teenage years, ultimately went to um, undergrad at Cameron University in Lawton, Oklahoma. Um, And it was at... Um, an American College Theater Festival, regional festival, somewhere in Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, one of the three, um, where I was walking through a hallway of a hotel room with my mentor, and Ray Scott happened to be coming the opposite way. Um, he stopped and asked my mentor if he knew of a scenic designer, and my mentor turned around and introduced me. Um, and then I think the next day I had a job off- offer, which was really exciting. Um, so I did my undergraduate uh, work at Cameron University, really small liberal arts school, Southwest Oklahoma. Um, I got an undergraduate degree in uh, theater design. I think that's what it, I think that's the formal title of it. And then um, I did my MFA in 
scenography at the University of Kansas. So I'm comprehensively trained in lighting, scenic, and costume design um, for stage. So while I was in undergrad and then a couple of years in grad school, and then once or twice since I've graduated since, um, I served in various roles at Canterbury. So I was, um, I think my first year I was a technical director and scenic designer. Um, and then the next year, I think I, I did a little bit of acting. And then maybe the year after that, they thought, well, she's relatively responsible. So let's make her company manager. <laughs> um, and so I think because after that, I mean, it was just kind of, okay, well, Leah's coming back and she's got her bedroom and, you know, like she's going to be a, a staple of the season, which is really exciting. Um, did it a couple of years in, in, grad, in grad school as well. And then once I graduated grad school, I moved to the DC metro area. I was on faculty at St. Mary's College of Maryland teaching design. Um, like I said, I went back to Canterbury a couple of times. And then recently I relocated to the Dallas Metroplex. Um, I've maintained a pretty solid freelancing career on top of um, educating the next generation of theater makers, which is really exciting. So got my start at Canterbury. It's pretty cool. Excellent. One quick thing is I'm going to dial back to your uh, high school and earlier years. Did you have any theater experiences way back then? And what were you doing? Yeah. So when I was in high school, I didn't, I didn't do, I think I did like one I did do one thing. It was, um, I was in high school at Sterlington High School in Sterlington, Louisiana, and we did this beta club production of Inspector Detector and the Case of the Precious Treasure. <laughs> and I played this crotchety old housemaid who happened to have a British accent for some reason. Um, I thrifted an old black dress, got a white apron, and put a bunch of baby powder in my hair and walked around like an old lady. It was a dinner theater fundraiser. It was really <laughs> and then from there, I didn't really do anything as far as theater high school production goes, I wasn't really involved in um, community theater or anything until we moved to Oklahoma. Um, it was the summer of my junior year of high school and I wasn't very athletic, so I had to be smart. And so I'd taken the ACT a couple of times at that point. And it was, um, I had a high enough score that the state of Oklahoma was willing to pay for college credits while I was still in high school so I could be concurrently enrolled. Um, and I was taking a class called Exploring Multiculturalism with Dr. David Fenema at Cameron. Um, and he was directing a production of Wit by Margaret Edson. And he asked if I wanted to audition and I was 17. I had no idea. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll go see what this is about. Um, spoiler alert. If you've never read Wit by Margaret Edson, um, it's pretty heartbreaking. And um, I got cast and that was really all she wrote. I did a couple of productions my junior year of high school there, did a couple of productions my senior year of high school. And then I... I came into their um, I came into their BA program at Cameron um, whenever I graduated. Very good. And wow. just real quick before we move on to our other guests, how did you get into really design and uh, you know whether scenic lighting and all the other things? What brought you to that field? Right. Um, so I started, funnily enough, in in performance. Um, I was an I was an actor for um, several years before I didn't get cast in a role that I wanted, <laughs> um, and I was like, well, you know, what am I going to do? So I went and I asked our technical director if I could um, help him paint because I was an art minor, um, and so. Uh, he said, yeah, sure. Do you want to be my scenic assistant? And that was really, um, it opened the door into something that I'd never really thought about before exploring space as a, as a vessel for storytelling. Um, and ever since then, I've really kind of 
tried to explore world creating, world building, and all of its different facets, right? So scenic lighting, costume design, my work recently has kind of ventured into the realm of extended realities, so augmented and virtual realities and their integration into live performance, um, projection design, all of that super fun stuff. So how do we manipulate space and people in a space and light in a space to tell a story? Very yeah, good. It's sort of the ultimate in installation art. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. It really is. And then it um, it runs for a couple of weeks and then it goes the way of the dodo. And it goes poof. Yeah. I know. Never to be seen or heard from again, which is quite sad, actually. Always different. Well, it, it's also really beautiful as it morphs into something new when somebody else takes it over. Absolutely. Well, the 55th year of the Canterbury. This is so impressive. And your the lineup that you have of of um, plays this season is fantastic. Um, Ray Scott or David, who, who would like to talk about or start talking about the season? Well, I can um, talk about that. And David and I can jump off on shows that we know more about. But 55th year, we are presenting um, three musicals and two non-musicals. Our, our theme, if you will, for the summer is By Land or By Sea in 2023. <laughs> kind yeah. of a corny way of, of approaching it, but we have a a couple of seafaring stories and some very definitely land-based stories. But we um, start with uh, The Violet Hour, which I'll let David talk about a little bit. Uh, but it's the first show of the season. David, you want to introduce that? Yes, The Violet Hour. Uh, it's a show uh, written in the early 2000s by Richard Greenberg, who uh, probably had more fame with uh, the show Take Me Out which uh, was a, a Pulitzer finalist and uh, won Best Play on Broadway, both when it was new and then as a revival. Uh, Three Days of Rain, other shows. Anyway, The Violet Hour is a, is a very interesting story. Uh, it takes place in April of 1919, uh, right on the cusp of the Jazz Age and right at the end of World War One. And it uh, concerns a young man who's come back from the war and has a little bit of uh, a family inheritance, and he's always wanted to be a publisher. So he sets up shop in, in a Manhattan office tower uh, with an assistant, and he has just enough money to print one book, publish one book. And he's torn between one of his best friend from school, uh, Denny McLean, who has a book that is in three crates. And then he's the other book he's torn to consider is by Jesse Brewster, who is a, a noted black jazz singer with whom he's having a clandestine affair. And a lot of these, uh, the characters involved, a lot of this are, are all based on, um, you know, not totally based, but the DNA is there of people like, F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, for Denny McLean, the heiress that he's trying to marry if he gets his book published. Uh, her name is Rosamond Plinth, but she's definitely a stand-in for uh, their relationship for uh, Zelda Fitzgerald. Jesse Brewster is an amalgam of Josephine Baker and Billie Holiday. And you could say that John Severing, who is the lead, is, is somewhat a, a Maxwell Perkins type. But you don't really need to know that, but just just where the bones of it are, some of the, the drama. And it's things are well and good until uh, uh, someone delivers a some sort of a printing press that he didn't ask for in his outer office. And during the course of the play, while he's haggling back and forth between his friends, 
the printing press starts shooting out paper, printed paper. And when they finally start paying attention to it, they realize that the paper that's being printed is actually books from later in the 20th century. And so they start reading about what happens. And then suddenly that changes a lot of things that are going on there, you know, in their drama itself. Uh, they get a glimpse of the, the future, so to speak. So anyway, it's a comedy drama and it's very, Greenberg is a very interesting, very interesting writer, very kind to sort of an American stoppered in a way in terms of ideas and uh, language and uh, uh, situations and, and history and all that. So it's a, it's a good, it's a, it's a very good show. It's very, very entertaining and it's thought provoking in its own way. Ray I Scott, thought it was very funny that he had it open like April 1st, 1919, <laughs> like on April fool's day. <laughs> yeah. 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 And yeah, it's right there. Uh, things are about to happen. I mean, prohibition is like just right around the corner Everybody's just gotten back from World War One. The Spanish flu is subsiding. So it's it's really about a deeper thing is about all these people, young people. They're all young in their 20s. They're all looking forward optimistically. It's like right on the verge of when things started changing a great deal in the country during the 20s. But one of my favorite lines is from they uh, one of them says, well, we've had we've had the, the great war. I mean, what else could possibly go wrong this century? <laughs> so anyway, anyway, that'll be running for uh, 14th through the 17th of June. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, on WVLP, 103.1 FM, and WDSO, 88.3 FM. And then I'm going to tag team off to let Ray Scott talk about Dames at Sea. Well, Dames at Sea, the postage stamp musical extravaganza that launched <laughs> the career of Bernadette Peters back in the late 60s, um, it's just a delightful... Uh, our, our audiences were wanting a book musical, and our, our current model is that we have small cast shows, so that tends to be small cast musicals, which more often than not are musical reviews or what we call jukebox musicals now. But Dames at Sea is, it literally is 42nd Street smashed down into a tiny little pretty box. <laughs> and uh, what I mean by that is there's tap dancing, there's costume changes, there's all these locations and everything, but it's all designed to be done in a very small location um, on a stage. Um, the, it's, it's the let's put on a show attitude of Judy Garland and, and uh, oh, what's his name? And... Um, they're trying to mount a Broadway show and they get the theater pulled out from under them. The WPA is bulldozing it and turning it into a parking lot or a garage. And uh, so the head um, actress, Mona, says, you know what? Let's put it on ship. I happen to have dated the captain. And the, <laughs> the playwright is like, well, he's my captain, too. I bet we can do this. So <laughs> second act, they take the, the, the show and open it on board ship and everyone's happy and Everyone lives happily ever after, making great successes. But it's a lot of fun. There's there's nothing serious there. It's all very silly and 
And um, like I said, we haven't had tap dancing on stage at the Canterbury in quite a while, so I'm looking forward to it. And of course, the hit song is Broadway Baby from that one. Yeah. So Yes, Broadway Baby. And then my personal favorite is a little sadder. It's uh, Raining in My Heart. Mm. Oh, but, yes. Uh, it's every cliche about Hollywood and Broadway that you can imagine is baked into this little surprise birthday cake of, of, um, of musical theater. Uh, it runs June 21st through July 1st, so it's the two weekends following the Violet Hour. And, um, yeah, we've got a great company coming in. Both shows, David's show has five or six in it. Um, Dames at Sea has seven in it. And um, those will be the largest company shows of the season. We'll, we'll pare down a little bit after that, but those are, that should get us off to a good start with our company. Um which, by the way, one of the reasons I was preoccupied today is that I've been corresponding with all of our company. They're getting ready to arrive, and they're very excited about it. They'll be wow. there two and a half weeks um, is, is go date for Canterbury. Uh, Pin Up Girls is one of those uh, jukebox musicals I was talking about, but it's a little bit different. It, it doesn't focus on the songs of one person. It focuses on all of the songs of the war era, starting with the, the World War One, um, the World War II, the, you know, through the Korean War, Vietnam, all the way into Afghanistan. But um, a group of singers, young people, are working at a VFW uh, hall, putting together a show, and they run across a box of old letters that were written from um, servicemen and women and were sent home. And they weren't necessarily delivered. Well, they make sure they are delivered with fond songs of those periods attached to those different war eras. And um, it's got a story with it, but it's, it's mostly just the music. Honky Tonk Angels are, are three girls who desire to become hit uh, country western singers, and they go to Nashville to follow their dreams. And it's a, a it's a, again a cute and silly story, but um, very touching. And uh, it pays homage to those wonderful songs by oh you know you name it the the Dolly Partons and the. Um, Stand by, stand by your man, and those kinds of songs from that period. The last show of the season is Scotland Road, and it's in August, the third through the fifth. This is a bit of a mystery. It's it's based upon the idea that what if you find someone in the North Atlantic who is dressed like they were on the Titanic, is wearing the the clothes and the period, and she's nine, looks to be you know twenty years old, and the only word she says when she's found on this iceberg in the North Atlantic is Titanic. So uh, the story follows decompressed decomposition of her s story. She doesn't have one. She just said the one word. But everybody assumes that she thinks she was on the Titanic, and we've got to discredit her and tear this apart. So the story really is the unraveling of that mystery. It's quite intriguing uh, to see what actually does end up being the story, which I won't give away here. But <laughs> yeah. if you're at all a Titanic fan, you'll love this. It's, it's quite, quite intriguing. Well, that's a, quite a season. Back to Leah, I have a question for you. Now, when you approach it, unlike uh, doing a single production, you're actually the kind of repertory thing. So in your scenic design and conceptualization, uh, tell us about that whole process. I mean, you have, you can't just design like for this show and then complete, and, and, and what's your turnaround time for between shows? And, you know, talk us about the logistics of, you know, designing the first show, building the other one, then switching it out. Tell us all about that. Right. Yeah. So Canterbury is really wonderful in that um, the first two or three weeks you are forged in fire. 
fire. Um, so it really um, was kind of you you have these preliminary conversations with your director. Typically, David was that first slot. Um, and, you know, like we would kind of like talk back and forth a little bit about what we wanted to do. And then um, usually Ray Scott um, picks up the second slot. And so by the time you're there in production that very first evening, right, like they'll get there and say their hellos and have orientation and go off to dinner and unpack their stuff. And then they'll come back and you start doing stuff that very, <laughs> end, that very evening. Um, and so the next morning, um, usually you're talking to Ray Scott, hey, what do you want for this next show? How can we start prepping for it? Um, so you usually have like about 10 days to get the first show on its feet, which was which was always um, a journey. Um, and then it runs for that weekend, right? Like that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or that, that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I don't remember what the shows are now, but um, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you strike Saturday night and you load in the next one Saturday night, Sunday morning. And so those first two weeks are a super quick turnaround. Um, and it it was it was usually um it was it was really fun right like it was a lot of fast paced a lot of thinking on your feet what do we have in stock how can this be repurposed um and it really it really tested how how great you were at multitasking that's all i'll say i know so you had a week between each show though correct no not quite no we have a week so for that first slot it was it would open on wednesday and then it would close saturday night and then that sunday following that saturday you're teching the next show because right. you have an opening that following wednesday right so and a week between openings so right. run for run for three or four shows and then break it down get it loaded back in in a day and a half so you're ready for tech that following evening it was it sounds like oh yeah you have a week but yeah I understand. I'll tell you after after the interview about my turnaround story and everything. But yeah, and when you when you design things, uh, do you have you thinking about show four? Well, what can I take through the season? You know, paint, re slightly modify. Is that part of your process? I mean, it certainly was a Canterbury. Absolutely right. Like, um, it was it was one of those things where. Um, uh, Ray Scott, or uh, if you're working with another director that had been at Canterbury before, right, it was, oh, I think I remember us this being in the basement. I, if I remember correctly, we put it here, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And certainly you would go down to the basement. It would be where it had been for the last 10 years. And so you put <laughs> the thing out, right? You repaint it, you slap it on stage and it's good to go. And so you learn, um, you learn a lot about, yeah, I mean, like, what do we have in stock? What have we built so that we can either scrap it and build something new, or we can take that same piece through to the end of the season. Um, it was always, it was always really um, cost effective cost effective in that way right like what did I make that I spent a lot of time on for the first show and how can that be repurposed in our final show of the season very good so uh, tell us a little real quick either Ray Scott or David how you find the uh, actors I know uh, from you get them from all over but just tell us a little about the process of casting he holds uh, goes to auditions uh, as part of uh, the college network down there and uh, we also hold online auditions that we uh, advertise here in Chicago and we look at a, we do a lot of Zoom <laughs> auditions and, you know, get a lot of resumes. And then we just start, uh, you know, between the two, between what he does down there and then the auditions uh, that, cir that circulate out of here, we get the people and we just start deciding, you know, how it's going to work out. And the problem with that is you have to figure out a kind of a, most of the cases, like a repertory company. If they're, I don't know if the person's in show one, going to be in show two, three, four, or you're going to cast individual shows as we get to our about final minute here. Well, actually, I will cast um, a, a company and put as many people in as many shows as I can. And then because we have a couple of shows with larger cast, we'll have a couple of people in for maybe two shows or some in for only one show. So it 
But there's a core company that will be here all summer. Well, quickly, in our last uh, few moments here, tell us a, a little bit about the season. Uh, again, uh, your overall show dates and how to get in touch with Canterbury, where you're at, how to get tickets. Well, we run June 14th through August 5th, and that's every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, Wednesday matinees at 2. The rest of the days are at 7 in the evening. Uh, tickets, you can go online to uh, canterburytheater.org. That's the website, and there's a connection there for uh, e-ticks if you want. There's also all the phone numbers and everything you need. You can call the theater, place an order that way, but that's the easiest way to get to it. Through it. It's canterburytheater.org. We have a season ticket uh, special. It's $80 for five tickets to all of those shows, and um, or you can use it five tickets any way you want to, five, five seats. And uh, that's our, our best deal. Otherwise, tickets are $20, single admission. Uh, uh, seniors are $18, and students are $10. Well, we appreciate coming in on Art in the Air. That's David Graham, Leah Mazur, Ray Scott Crawford from the wonderful theater that you guys do in Canterbury. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. We'd like to thank our guests this week on Art in the Air, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Art on the Air is also heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on WDSO 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Media. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operation for Lakeshore Public Media, and Greg Kovach, WVLP's Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We'd like to thank our current underwriters for Lakeshore Public Media, Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker and for WVLP, Walt Reitinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art in the Air. We rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art on the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself through art, and show the world.